VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You gotta understand something here. This music is the glue of the world. It holds it all together. Without this, life would be meaningless. What are you getting so crazy about? It's just music. Before it became an instrument of popular music, it was a tool of military espionage. We trace the history of the vocoder from Winston Churchill to Africa Bombada. Plus, we have reviews of new albums by the experimental folkies Blitz and Trapper and electronic rockers Sleigh Bells. I'm Jim DeRogatis of Vocalo.org. And I'm Greg Codd of the Chicago Tribune. Stay tuned for that and more today on Sound Opinions. From WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media, you're listening to Sound Opinions, and it's time now to welcome our newest affiliate. Yes, indeed, Jim. It is time to welcome WITH-FM in beautiful Ithaca, New York. I was born in upstate New York, as you well know. So it's fondness a, for that area you have. And whenever we welcome a new station to the Sound Opinions fold, we like to play a piece of music associated with that area. Uh, We're going to dig deep for this one. Lawrence Hammond, one of the great inventors of the 20th century, actually went to school at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Mr. Lawrence Hammond graduated there in 1916 with an honors degree in mechanical engineering. Soon after, he created what I think is his greatest invention, certainly his greatest contribution to popular music. An electric organ later became known as the Hammond organ. Consider that this instrument, Jim, because of its versatility, had a major role in the development of jazz, blues, rock, church, and gospel music. We love it because of its role in rock music. I mean, everyone from Keith Emerson to John Paul Jones and Led Zeppelin, Matthew Fitcher and Procol Harum, Greg Allman and the Allman Brothers, Booker T. Jones of Booker T. and the MGs, in the jazz world, Jimmy Smith. All these musicians made their name on the Hammond organ. But I'm going to play the king of the Hammond organ, as far as I'm concerned, in tribute to uh, WITH-FM in Ithaca, New York. That is John Lord of Deep Purple. As far yes. as I'm concerned, there is only one great Hammond organ player in all of rock music, and this is the guy. And I think his greatest moment is this song right here. Hush, a hit for Deep Purple in 1967. Here's John Lord's Hammond organ solo on Sound Opinions.
That is John Lord of Deep Purple with his Hammond organ solo on Hush from 1967 in tribute to Lawrence Hammond, who attended Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Welcome to WITH-FM. Greg, every year around this time, we have to briefly touch upon the winner of the biggest pop idol singer contest in the universe. I am not talking about American Idol. That kid from the Chicago suburbs, Lee DeWise, won. I know you had to cover it for the newspaper. Down this year, the American Idol ratings juggernaut, down some 18% from last year, about 23 million viewers. More than 120 million people watch the results of the Eurovision contest. That huge contest in Europe where the best pop singer is chosen. Previous winners have included ABBA and Celine Dion. You had Julio Iglesias, Olivia Newton-John, and Cliff Richard go through that big contest over there. You know, it's interesting. It's always a little more original. I'm not saying necessarily that it's good, but at least people have to try a little harder to stand out from the pack, whereas American Idol, people always seem to be copying something. The winner this year was a 19-year-old German girl. I'm going to try to do justice to her name, Lena Meyer-Landrut. She uh, had a song called Satellite. We heard a little bit of it on the way in. The Time magazine, I think, aptly described as blurring the lines between innocent puppy love and weird psychotic obsession. <laughs> but, but I mean, just think about those numbers. 120 million people watching Eurovision. That is the most watched non-sporting event in the world. You have people all over the continent of Europe and as far afield as Burma and yeah. New Zealand <laughs> tuning into this, whereas American Idol, as huge as it is, was down to, to one-fifth of that viewership. Let's pay tribute to uh, young Ms. Meyer Landrut with a little bit more of her winning song, Satellites, the 55th annual Eurovision Song Contest winner. Lena Meyer Landrut with Satellite, the winner of this year's Eurovision contest on Sound Opinions. Listening to Sound Opinions, and what you're hearing is Bombada's theme by DJ Africa Bombada. He's one of the hip-hop artists who pioneered the use of the vocoder. Now, the vocoder is a device that manipulates your voice, separating it into different wavelengths. It produces a distorted robotic sound that's been favored by everyone from Phil Collins to Kraftwerk. But in his new book, How to Wreck a Nice Beach, The Vocoder from World War II to Hip-Hop, author Dave Tompkins reveals the instrument's surprising military past as an encryption device used by Winston Churchill and Franklin Roosevelt. 
David, say hello first through the vocoder, just so we get a taste. <laughs> oh, excellent. Dave Tompkins and a cast of thousands, thanks to electronics. All right. We've dropped this name a million times in record reviews, especially in, in recent years. The vocoder has had a resurgence. You've written an entire book that not only is, is a great piece of music journalism, but it's a fascinating piece of history. Can you take us through how this uh, wonderful instrument came to be? I guess, it, in a sense, it was invented to reduce your phone bill. There's an early speech by a German uh, phonetics information theory guy named Werner Meyer Epler, and um, this is 1949. And he says that, well, it sounds like a homunculus or a robot, and what you will hear would rather belong to the realm of the unreal than sober science. <laughs> so you can imagine sober science at that point, their faces dropping. There are a bunch of radio bigwigs in the audience at that time. And he says, he continues to say that all efforts towards a synthetic representation of language come from one you know, departure point or to one question. And what can one do to make telephone calls less expensive? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of, yeah, because this machine could break the voice down into pieces and transmit that coded information to the receiving end, and then the voice synthesizer, which is what we're familiar with, the mm-hmm. robot voice, would reconstruct that information into human speech. And they called it speech compression, which was considered heresy at that point. They're, they're trying to improve transmission of speech through the transatlantic cable. To send um, more sound through the transatlantic cable, make well, telephone communications better. More, yeah, it's invented to uh, <laughs> it's invented to um, improve communications, but would would be used for distorting for communications. Ma- for, well, for masking <laughs> communications by the military, mm-hmm. and then ultimately fall into the hands of a hip hop DJ who would make it so everybody could hear it. The trajectory was really interesting to me. So it was invented for because the vocoder could break the voice down. You could have 10 telephone conversations or 10 channels occupying the space of one. Mm-hmm. So it's all about saving space, even though the machine itself was massive. And it, it had usages during uh, World War II as sort of a spy device, masking communication so that they could talk and code back and forth about military secrets, right? Because the state of telecommunications, military and otherwise, was, was pretty porous. I mean, even stockbrokers were able to eavesdrop and get hot tips before <laughs> the bell rang in the morning. Yeah. Hmm. But with the military, um, the, they're using a, a scrambler called the A3, which had been invented by, by AT&T, and Bell Labs was the research division of AT&T. And that scrambler that was being used by Churchill and FDR prior to and during World War II, their conversations were, you know, they're being deciphered in real time virtually. So there's, there's a cry for what they call indestructible speech, something that could withstand the code breaker. Um, mm-hmm. And the vocoder was, was, the ideal, was the ideal candidate for that. Bell Lab, the NDRC, the National Research Defense Committee, had, had tapped Bell Labs to, to build a, a machine because mm-hmm. Pearl Harbor in particular was, was an impetus behind it because General George, George Marshall's warning from the State Department had to go through a telegraph. Uh, they went through Western Union because he didn't trust the phone. So by the time the ultimate, his warning about the Japanese ultimatum got to Honolulu and got to Walt late. Short's office, it was later in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
And Pearl so, Harbor was already in flames, yeah. So so Marshall, of course, was one of the Vokoder's biggest advocates. So this this device has all these uses in telecommunications. It's a key part of the war. World leaders are, are using it to communicate at, at the height of this war. How does it morph from that beginning into a musical device that becomes ubiquitous in, in pop music? It was interesting because they're already sort of realizing it's its entertainment implications, even lo- looking at the early patents, that the vocoder would be a, a great weapon for sound effects. Um, it had been pitched to Disney and MGM Studios in the 1930s, even even prior to the war. But as far as from how we've heard the vocoder, the 60s were a time when you had the German, West German radio, WDR, were so encouraged by that speech I mentioned earlier about Dr. By Werner Meyer Epler that they would have a vocoder for their, their studio in uh, Cologne. Mm, just to and, play around with. But uh, it was used for countdowns in a German science fiction serial in mm-hmm. 1966 called Space Patrol. And the composer was Peter Thomas. Ten, nine, acht, sieben, sechs, fünf, vier, drei, zwei, But most people would associate with the Clockwork Orange and Wendy Carlos in mm-hmm. 1971 with, with her version of Beethoven's Ninth. synthesizer albums to break into popular consciousness. Wendy Carlos and, and later did the uh, Clockwork Orange soundtrack. But she was a superstar and really put this instrument on the map. How did she use it in the uh, the Hooked on Beethoven record? Well, she actually used it in, in terms of melody because prior to that, they would have these standard sort of robotic countdowns like for the, uh, the Space Patrol soundtrack. It, mm-hmm. was, it was numbers before numbers in a way. But she was actually playing the chords, and uh, her and Robert Moog had custom-designed this for her. And I, th- I think it, it, it really kind of horrified the music academia. Cause well, yeah, won- because machines were going to put musicians out of work. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a patch could replace your string section. Yeah. Well, you've got, yeah, you've got an entire, you got one instrument mm-hmm. replacing an entire orchestra to do a Beethoven piece, basically. That's pretty radical. Well, we laugh at it one now. One instrument, it's, one it's, finger. It, one yeah, finger. Well, she, it was monophonic, so she was yeah. constructing the chords one yeah. note at a time. Yeah. We laugh at it now, you know, because those synthesizers don't sound like a string section. They never <laughs> did. Even today's state-of-the-art digital doesn't really sound like strings. But there was this real fear in the 60s and 70s that these machines were going to replace the orchestra and yeah. talented musicians. And it's ludicrous now. Now we want them because they don't sound like anything human. I guess in my generation, growing up listening to new synthesizers for the first time, especially through hip-hop, it didn't sound like string sections. It sounded like synthesizers. Yeah. Like mm-hmm. I, ne- I, never, I never realized that, oh, they're trying to emulate a string section until, until much later when I was trying to sort of map, you know, figure out where, where the hell all this stuff came from. Yeah, and it, it really took off in the inner-city community. You know, the electro-funk and hip-hop worlds really adopted this instrument as their own. Why was that? I think a lot of it was travel and escapism. I mean, this was the future. This was the sound of the future, and the future in the present sense was bleak. Mm -hmm. Um, 
And there's a documentary called Beat This, where Africa Bambata shows up in the Museum of Natural History in the planetarium <laughs> on the vocoder and says that he's the funk overlord and he's here to take control of your mind. I am the funk overlord. I have come to take control of your mind. Who controls the present controls the past. Who controls the past controls the future. A lot of folks I would interview would say, I don't know, it's something about that that made you want, just made you want to be an alien. Yeah, well, it's so interesting because the, the, the guys in Detroit, the inner city of Detroit, were, were listening to all these electronic records out of Germany. Um, Bambada, as you said, was a big Kraftwerk fan. Interesting how these cross-continental connections between totally opposite cultures were being made. Well, and you, you look at the tradition, Greg. You know, George mm-hmm. Clinton had the spaceship with yeah. Parliament Funkadelic. Sun Ra had his orchestra, and he yeah. claimed to be from Venus. You know, when the ghetto life is a real bummer, hey, I want to live in outer space. And then I think the talk box is a big, the vocoder's cousin, the tube, the talk box is a big influence on that as well because he had Sly Stone and Larry Graham and Rufus were already recording funk songs with the talk box before before the electro hip-hop and electro funk really hit. And then in rock, you know, the, you know Peter Frampton or Joe Walsh, right? It's, it's the tube in the mouth, yeah. and mm-hmm. that goes through, you know, the guitar hooks into that. You're saying that's a cousin to the vocoder, the talk box. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, the, cousin, it's the vocoder's cousin with bad hygiene. Um, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's the problem with the drool, the talk box. Um, and, and that was more ubiquitous, it seemed like, on rock records, uh, or at least as cited, Frampton and, and Walsh were probably the more, more famous exemplars of that. And I guess it was more associated with guitar players because they, could, they were manipulating the notes on the guitar at the same time that they were mimicking them vocally, right? Mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and you had this weird distorted effect going on. And Steve, Stevie Wonder in particular, once mm-hmm. he was introduced to Tonto, and mm-hmm. Tonto's expanding headband, I think, I think that blew his mind. <laughs> We're going to continue our discussion about the vocoder with author Dave Tompkins after a break on sound opinions from WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media. Later in the show, we've got New Elm Reviews and Jim's Desert Island Jukebox Selection.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, and I'm here with Greg Cott. And the song you are listening to is The Raven by the Alan Parsons Project, one of the earliest examples in popular music of the use of the vocoder. As we've been learning from our guest Dave Tompkins, the author of How to Wreck a Nice Beach, the vocoder from World War II to hip-hop, this instrument was initially developed so that the military could send encoded messages during World War II. Eventually, though, it was picked up by musicians like Ralph Hooter of Kraftwerk and later on a number of hip-hop artists. In fact, the vocoder is often misidentified as the culprit behind stuff like T-Pain and Kanye West, some of their biggest hits, but that's really auto-tune. Now, Dave, I'm curious to know how accessible the vocoder was to people in the hip-hop community. What did it cost in 1982? I mean, it was a real investment, right? You well, could then, buy a car or you could buy this thing. Well, then they were, well, well, the early, say the early ones, just backtracking to the 70s, the early ones, were, as Ralph once said, I believe, ran about the cost of a used Volkswagen. But by the early 80s, they were finally getting it under a G. And I think the Korg and the Roland SVC models, which were mainly used by, I think the Korg and the Roland were used a lot by hip-hop artists. Mm. But it's something that's always in the studio. I think Bambato was one of the first to actually lug one of those suckers to parties and freak people out. When mm-hmm. they thought they were hearing the record, they realized he wasn't playing the record, but he was talking on the vocoder. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people thought that was his real voice because you don't have a tube in your mouth. You can't... He's assumed that, you know, he has a horrible sore throat or something. (laughs) Now, is there a technique to projecting your voice through the vocoder? Do you have to practice it in order to become better at communicating because I could see where the words could become so distorted where you wouldn't actually have any sense at all of what it's being said so how, how does that work I think I think humans have a normal proclivity when approaching the, when addressing the vocoder to want to sound like a robot there's this thing that mm-hmm. makes this innate thing in the back of your brain that makes you scrunch up your nostrils and want to sound like a Cylon which yeah. makes it less intelligible and that was one, one of the things the BBC were doing when they were doing their you know, testing out these, these, this massive vocoder that was in the studio for their productions, say Doctor Who or, and stuff like that. Uh, the next phrase was done using this box here, which is the vocoder. And this gives out uh, um, an electronic but voice-like sort of quality. I'll show you what I mean. Now, the only way you can let it out of the box, as it were, is to speak into this microphone, and it comes out of the box sounding like your voice. Here we are. There's different theories on that. Say, if if you're Rem LZ, an old school graffiti artist, and um, he recorded a song with Jean Michel Basquiat called Beat Bop, his theory is is that you just have to vibrate your diaphragm. 
Mm-hmm. This man put himself through a lot of pain. It's, it's like vocal to, training <laughs> to make that. Yeah, to yeah. make to, to make it clear, and he and he he thanks the monks for it. I've seen I've seen vocalists sometimes uh, you know hit themselves hard in the chest to get a natural vibrato, and that's basically what he was doing. Cl- cleaning out the gubbins, maybe. Talking to Dave Tompkins, uh, author of How to Wreck a Nice Beach, The History of the Vocoder in Popular Music, and in World War II, where it starts. You've got in front of you a, a Korg, right? Probably one of the best-known vocoders. Can you give us some sense, uh, Dave, of, of the different things it does? I mean, sure. it's got like a million knobs on it. It looks like, a, it looks like a, a Moog, if anybody knows what those synthesizers look like. Or you can take it here for your uh, standard Cylon. So there's the robot down at the end of the keyboard. Yeah, that's, that's the robot at the bottom of the barrel. The low register, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I tend to like the vocoder for its incoherencies mm-hmm. more than articulate. Like when it's used for texture and layers, you can get a get a good um, drone. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. There's the chipmunk. Okay. Yeah, that was a chipmunk. Um, this kind of has more of a watery sound. Wow, that that's a toy that you could just spend weeks with right you're going to leave all the possibilities you're going to leave that with us right for uh, a couple weeks this is why i don't keep these things around the house Now, how does this differ from autotune, which has become ubiquitous on R&B, hip-hop records, especially in the last decade? Well, autotune is just places you're pitching the correct place on the correct notation on the on the scale and autotune is, has always been there we just have never heard it really it's mm-hmm. which is kind of eerie to me that everybody's been singing perfectly and we just assumed mm-hmm. that they all had great voices yeah but we hear autotune on the radio and when the pitch is what they call the set to tune zero where it has this instantaneous sort of warbly effect mm-hmm. the good news is that autotune is often mis- mistook for a vocoder so that throws the vocoder word the good name out there mm-hmm. yeah out there as a meme almost so it becomes a brand in a way the way t-pain was referring to his yeah. autotune as a vocoder or every tissue is a kleenex yeah 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 because the vocoder it takes takes the voice and breaks it down and you typically with you have an input for speech, and you have an input for a carrier wave. And a carrier wave would typically be a, a synthesizer. Or in the case of ALO, you try to run your entire one-man electric light orchestra through it. <laughs> <laughs> so ALO is a good example of folks using the vocoder. And they use it for voice, of course, but a lot of times it's, it was for compression or use it to just enhance the atmosphere of the entire sound.
What about the uh, top vocoder records of all time? You oh, got uh, two or three you could throw at us that are personal favorites of yours? It changes every day. Sure. Give yeah, us today's um, choices. Today's right. Desert Island yeah. jukebox <laughs> pick. I mean, right now I'm really feeling um, I'm not moving about Phil Collins from face value. Wow. Because the vocoder's there, but it's really not. It's, it's just kind of shadowing the song in a way. You, you can barely hear it. I love uh, the instrumental of Spooks by the Tom Tom Club. It's again an example of speech, not speech. The vocoder being used for texture and mm-hmm. sort of meow type types of sound. In terms of uh, the influence of the vocoder, we already mentioned the Wendy Carlos track as being hugely influential. Were there any other historic moments along the way where you can kind of say, well, this is a turning point, everybody heard this record, and everybody went out and bought a vocoder the next day, kind of like seeing the Beatles on Ed Sullivan in 64? I think, yeah, Kraftwerk freaked everybody out. I mean, this is, Man Parrish was telling me when he was, Man Parrish is an early electro hip-hop artist, and uh, He's passing out in the back of a cab after after, after a night at night at the Anvil, and it's a classic rock station. He's listening to Alison Steele, the Nightbird of N.E.W., yeah. and uh, somewhere between say Inagad, DeVito, or um, Clapton, uh, there would be Trans Europe Express. So it's interesting that Kraftwerk was, was getting getting play on on, on a cla- classic rock format. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> which I think I think that that really is a confluence with this, with the synth technology that was evolving at that time. Mm-hmm. So it made sense. Like Kraftwerk sounded perfectly natural in this context. Yeah. Well, we we got some of your favorite picks, Dave, of all time for the vocoder. Tell us a. Uh, one or two of the cheesiest uses these days that that as a, you clearly love this machine you know and, mean, and you've infected the two of us but but <laughs> but when you hear something come on the radio that you're just like man except so i grew up with i grew up with hip-hop and so there wasn't that much rap on the radio so you listen to everything to get to the rap so there and there's an amazing song by dayton called the sound of music and is there you have roger troutman and zap you know, had the lock on the talk box, then groups like Dayton and Midnight Star would handle, you know, the vocoder would be their sound. Yeah. 
And the sound of music is an overpowering, beautiful, possibly the happiest song on earth. And but if if you didn't grow up with it, it might sound you know, it's a fine line between cheesy and classy. Mm-hmm. And these things all sound completely classy to me. I mean, it's yeah. it's old R and B and soul that I was hearing on the radio in North Carolina. Yeah, that's yeah, not cheesy. That's that's a disclaimer. The sound of music is not cheesy. But I also um, think, Dave, come on, let's be honest. You never met a vocoder you didn't like. Man, I swear this plan. I mean, of course, Mr. Roboto. Um, <laughs> but, that, but, but, but see, even then, I have to You're have... You're not going to defend sticks on sound opinions. No. We want to thank Dave Tompkins, author of How to Wreck a Nice Beach, uh, for being our guest on Sound Opinions. Dave, thanks for uh, bringing yourself and the vocoder in. Oh, thanks a lot for having me. listening to Sound Opinions, and that is a song called The Man Who Would Speak Truth by Blitz and Trapper from their fifth album, Destroyer of the Void. Greg, we had Blitz and Trapper on the show, this wonderful sextet from Portland, Oregon in 2009, when they were touring behind their first sub-pop album, Fur, F-U-R-R. The band formed in the early 2000s and broke wide with a record called Wild Mountain Nation in 2007 signed to everybody's favorite indie label, Sub Pop, and really have been building ever since, getting a lot of attention on the festival circuit, in the indie rock universe, and from the mainstream as well. I think largely because of guitarist, vocalist, and songwriter Eric Early, who really has a literary way with lyrics. And, you know, the band musically is part of this movement that's been called either Beard Rock or Forest Rock. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek name, but we've seen an interesting semi-acoustic Americana folk rock movement in the last couple of years in indie rock. Bands like Fleet Foxes, Midlake, and Animal Collective when it's not really synthy. These guys are, are way in front of that pack, both because of their hairsuit tendencies <laughs> and their literary and musical ways. Let's hear a track from their fifth album's Just Outs called Destroyer of the Void. This is the title track by Blitz and Trapper on Sound Opinions.
That was a bit of the title track from the uh, fifth Blitz and Trapper album, Destroyer of the Void, on Sound Opinions. By far, to me, Jim, the most interesting part of this record. Destroyer of the Void begins this record in really promising fashion. It's this six-minute-plus track. The midsection goes off into this glam rock stratosphere with this wild, over-the-top guitar solo, and you're going, wow, this is really cool, really ambitious arrangement, great song, gets the album off to a great start. You know, I respect Eric Early as a songwriter. I I dig the whole Old West narrative bit, you know, the hippie idealism, the folk storytelling tradition that he's coming out of. That's all well and good. But the rest of the album sort of falls back into that pocket where I feel like he's repeating some of his best moments. I thought, for example, the title song from Fur, the previous album that you referenced, was absolutely the high point of his career. It's a terrific song in that tradition. I wanted to hear them go someplace new on this record, and the title song is that new place, but they never quite get back to it. I feel much of this album is a little bit too predictable. Early's clearly the standout here, but I feel I've heard them do this better before, and I'm going to have to give it a burn it. I cannot believe the things I just heard you say. <laughs> I, I love this band, as you did on the last two albums. This record is is a horrible mess, Greg. The same thing that you're championing as the departure and the move forward, mm. that title track, I think is a disgrace. I, you know, there, <laughs> there are tinkling harpsichords and these cheesy stacked harmony vocals resonant of Queen. There's all this faux Brian May guitar solo stuff. You know, it's not even like aping Queen. They're aping Muse aping <laughs> Queen. And I don't know what they're doing. And it's not the only time, because yeah. we could forgive one song. I think those other tracks, Love and Hate, Heaven and Earth, Lover Leave Me Drowning, they're also in this pomp rock mode. You know, let us not forget that the guys in Kansas and Sticks also had beards, yeah, okay? Well. What I liked about Early before is that he was tapping into that pagan, dark, backwoods tradition of like incredible string band or even Jethro Tull up to heavy horses. I, I could live with that. <laughs> this is, is I don't know what is this new move, move toward like you know carry on my wayward son. I gotta give it a trash it I'm sorry to say. So on the buy it burn it trash it scale at Sound Opinions that is a trash it from Mr. DeRigatis and a burn it from me. We also want to hear your critical opinions, so leave a message to air on the show at 888-859-1800. We'll be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media with a review of the debut album from Sleigh Bells and Jim's Desert Island Jukebox pick. Taxi drive through raining eyes A finger right on window pane That heaven's in a hurricane 
Driving up through trees so bad I know you're here but I don't know where Welcome back to Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and American Public Media. That is a song called Infinity Guitars from the debut album by Sleigh Bells called Treats. Sleigh Bells, a duo out of New York City. Derek Miller on guitar, electronic effects, and Alexis Krauss on vocals. Serendipitous meeting in a restaurant. They'd been kicking around the scene in various bands over the last few years. They met, they formed a band, they put up some songs on MySpace. The next thing you know, they were the toast of the CMJ Music Festival in 2009. They made some more appearances at the South by Southwest Music Conference in Austin, Texas, where I happened to catch them. And now we have the much-buzzed-about debut album, Treats. Let's hear a track from it before we review it. It's called Real Real from Sleigh Bells on Sound Opinions.
That is a song called Real Real by Sleigh Bells from their debut album Treats, coming out on the N-E-E-T label, which happens to be M-I-A's, Boutique Label. Lots of things for hipsters to love in this band, Greg. But that doesn't include the pedigree of Mr. Derek Miller. You kind of glossed over it. He was the guitarist in a fine screamo or hardcore band called Poison the Well. And in that setting, there was a lot of noise on the guitars, on the Cookie Monster vocals. But a whole lot of noise is taken to a new level by Sleigh Bells on Treats. Great waves of fuzz are just hosed over every single <laughs> instrument, except for Alexis Krauss's kind of chanted cheerleader vocals. If one were to take away all that noise, you would hear pretty much what the Go team did on its last two albums, kind of playground hip-hop chants with a very young, naive female singer. That's fine. And I, I'm a connoisseur of noise, okay? I listen to and love metal machine music. I champion the Aphex Twin. But this is a particular kind of digital noise, which is like clipping. Everything is on 11 and in the red, and it sounds like you have an old Sony Discman that is malfunctioning and skipping around, and it just drives me up the wall. It is not good new noise. It, 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 it is very, very bad noise on the Buy It, Burn It, Trash It scale, and no, I'm not in a bad mood today. i got to say this is a trash, and I don't understand what people are loving in this record. Can we save a clip this moment? This record, on the record here, Jim DeRigata says, this record is too loud. I don't in a, like in it. A it's bad too noisy. Way. Yes. Oh, my God. I cannot believe you. You know, yes, it is ear bleed loud at points, but, man, this is the stuff that gets me up in the morning. This, <laughs> this is better than a double shot of espresso. I don't think this band has got another album in them. I, I'm not sure that there is more to do with this little formula that they've developed on this record. But I love this record for exactly what it is, which is a great pick-me-up. A lot of energy, a lot of exuberance, hooks galore. Yes, very loud, very abrasive, but she balances it with her vocals. What I love about Alexis Krauss on this record is she seems totally oblivious to this maelstrom going on around her. She's so calm and collected in the middle of all of that. Well, my uh, bloody you know, Valentine did that. Yeah. I mean, that's been done a million times. Yeah, but she's, but she's much more exuberant, whereas my bloody Valentine was sort of blasé about the whole thing with their vocals were intentionally kind of deadpan and laid back. She's enthusiastic in this kind of cheerleader kind of way, and it's a very ingratiating, endearing kind of sound. I love this record. As I said, I'm not sure that they have a second one in them, but for what it is, Treats is exactly what it needs to be, and I think it's a buy-it record. I tell you, little buddy, this whole island is bewitched. As often as we can on Sound Opinions, we like to take a trip to the desert island and drop a quarter in the jukebox to play a song we cannot live without. And this week, it is Jim's turn. Thank you, Greg. I want to uh, use my desert island pick to pay brief tribute to Dennis Hopper, who died recently. I'm sure everyone knows it got no shortage of attention. Hopper, a famous actor and director, 
I want to pay tribute to Hopper, the soundtrack savant, as the Village Voice called him in a very nice little piece. We forget that in addition to directing Easy Rider, he was in charge of choosing the music for that classic of 60s cinema. Did the same thing again in the 70s for a uh, cult favorite punk movie, Out of the Blue, and in the 80s for Colors. Hopper was a problematic guy. Towards the end of his life, very conservative, by many accounts, a very difficult man. But he had the musical ear. And if you go back to Easy Rider, and I will say it's a little bit of a cheesy movie, I would prefer Five Easy Pieces as my choice of 60s alienation cinema, but it has moments, right? And the moments come because of the music. You can't forget the use of those two Steppenwolf songs, Born to be Wild, The Weight by the Band. He's got the Jimi Hendrix experience in there. He's got Little Eva. He's got the Electric Croons and Electric Flag. But I got to go with The Birds. The Birds were so associated with that soundtrack. Roger McGuinn writing the ballad of Easy Rider was initially an assignment given to Bob Dylan. Dylan came up with two couplets, the lines about the wind floating, and said, give the rest to McGuinn. He'll finish it. Mm -hmm. Indeed, McGuinn did. The version on the soundtrack is just Roger McGuinn with a little bit of help from Graham Parsons. But then the Birds did a version of the entire song as a full band, and they named their eighth album the Ballad of Easy Rider after that track. I'm going to play the track that the Birds did, the whole band, not the one heard in the movie. I think it's fitting. Obviously, they were inspired by Hopper's cinematic vision, and Hopper gave a lot of great music to the world by using it in his soundtracks. Here are the Birds with the Ballad of Easy Rider on Sound Opinions. flows, it flows to the sea, wherever that river goes, that's where I want to be, flow, river flow, let your waters wash down, take me from this road, to some other town. Was to be free, and that's the way it turned out to be. Flow, river, flow. Let your waters wash down, take me from this road to some other town. Flow, river, flow. Past the shitty tree Go river, go Go to the sea That's The Birds with the Ballad of Easy Rider, my Desert Island jukebox pick. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, it is time for our best albums of the year so far. 
As always, we have some thank yous to say on the way out. Our interview with Dave Tompkins was recorded by Mary Gaffney. The show is produced by Jason Saldana and Robin Lynn. They, I think, are the Jack Nicholson and Peter Fonda of our team. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, Tori Southside Malatia. Well, he's kind of our Dennis Hopper. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey, Kim and Greg. This is Tom from Chicago. Just wanted to call and say thanks for introducing me to the new Janelle Monet album. Uh, in listening to the album, I've been blown away by her ability to take musical styles from all over the map and combine them into one uh, coherent, cohesive piece. I think the best example of that is on her song, Oh Maker, which sounds to me like a duet between where Karen Carpenter sings on the verses and uh, Lauren Hill sings on the chorus. She really takes old sound and makes it into something new. She recombines old ideas into something that could only have come from her android futuristic metropolis. And it's uh, really a lot of fun to listen to. So thanks for introducing me to it, and uh, I love the show. Keep making it. Thanks, guys. Bye. Oh, maker, tell me, did you know this love would burn so yellow? Hey, guys. It's Jason from L.A. I was just listening to your Buried Treasure podcast. Uh, and the music news bit at the very beginning. And I really, I feel like I need to issue a correction. You guys keep calling the Black Eyed Peas the biggest band right now, this band, that band. The Black Eyed Peas are not a band. They don't play instruments. Three of them don't even sing. And when one of them sings, she's auto-tuned to hell. That is a pop group. That is four pop singers, or rather one pop singer and three pop rappers slash dancers who sometimes have production or a backing band behind them. I don't know, maybe Will I Am is some type of musician behind the you know behind the boards producing the records, but they are not a band. I got that hit to beat the block. You can get that bass on below. I got that rock and roll, that future flow, that digital spit, next level visual ish. I got that how to beat bang. And calling them a band is an affront and an offense to every band, garage band to you know, psych, folkadelic, whatever band, you know, it's, a, it's an insult to people who actually play music for a living. So when you refer to the Black Eyed Peas from here on out, please refer to them as a pop group or a rap group, but don't call them a band. Gotta get that boom, 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 gotta get that boom, boom.
Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Sarah from Pennsylvania, and I'm calling to say thanks for your appreciation of Ronnie James Dio. I was lucky enough to see him perform many, many times, though I never saw the devil's horns or heard a note of heavy metal. That's because I saw him in the 60s when he fronted Ronnie Dio and the Prophets. And they played the hits, Motown, Rascals, Beatles and Stones. I couldn't have been more shocked when I went to the record store a few years later and saw them in the heavy metal section. I hadn't seen that coming at all. I've never been a metal fan, but I was always happy he found the wealth and fame he deserved. He was such a wonderful musician and a whole lot more versatile than people know. He'll be greatly missed. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.